Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep here in sunny Fargo, North Dakota. I am excited to welcome you to Talking Sleep, the AASM podcast exploring a wide variety of topics related to the clinical practice of sleep medicine. Today, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Barbara McCann. She is a psychologist in Seattle and is the University of Washington's Mental Health Counseling and Hypnosis Endowed Chair. She's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. She is also a member of the Association of Psychological Science and a member of the Society of Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis. Dr. McCann believes in helping patients identify their existing strengths and resources and bringing those skills to bear on current problems. Thank you for joining us, Dr. McCann. I'm glad you could take some time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. The pandemic has affected everyone in different ways, and my sleep medicine colleagues and I have seen anxiety manifest itself in some significant ways when it comes to sleep disorders. What we really want to focus on today with Dr. McCann are insomnias in the time of COVID. But first, of course, I always have to ask, how has your quarantine been treating you? It's been treating me fairly well. Uh, I live close to work at the moment, and uh, I have lots of things to keep me interested and happy and engaged. And so I think overall, it's been fine. Oh, isn't that lovely to hear a positive story? (laughs) So tell me, how has your practice changed due to COVID? Do you think your patients have changed? They have. Uh, First of all, I'm doing everything by telemedicine and, um, you know, telehealth remotely, seeing all my patients remotely. And what that means is uh, sometimes when I'm ready for them to join the session over the platform we're using, it's a common one. It rhymes with broom. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when when people join remotely, uh, when I'm ready for them to join, they're often not there. Now, I'm used to traffic, having <laughs> leading people to be late, but I'm, I'm puzzling over this one. And I've had a surprising number of interviews where people look like they just got out of bed. So as a, as a sleep clinic uh, psychologist, that's, that's really interesting. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I had one guy that had his bed his bed covers up to his nose. Oh my goodness! When he signed yeah. on, and I wasn't quite sure how to how to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty telling, and uh, you know, also from from as someone who treats insomnia, <clears throat> when I'm uh, wanting to speak with someone about their insomnia and they just can't fathom meeting with me at eight o'clock in the morning even though they don't have to commute to come see me, that's really telling because that means they're not getting up at the same time every day and they're not really respecting circadian cues for sleep. Well, so tell me, tell me more. Tell me more about cognitive behavioral therapy and insomnia. Well, um, as you know, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia is really the treatment of choice. And we have considerable amount of evidence to show that it works very well. But the problem with it is disseminating it getting it out there to many people. I think this is why colleagues such as uh, Dr. Daniel Bicey have worked to develop brief behavioral treatment interventions for insomnia so that we can see that kind of intervention used by more people requiring less expertise to do it and hopefully seeing those interventions introduced and used regularly in primary care settings. Have you had any experience with that in the primary care setting? I haven't. Um, I consult to primary care often, but 
I'm not physically in a primary care clinic. So people send someone to my office to see me, or at this point, uh, what I do is I see people remotely, as I indicated. So tell me more about the brief behavioral interventions. So brief behavioral interventions are really recognizing that uh, what you're doing when you're treating insomnia is you're really keeping people um, out of bed other than when they're sleeping. That's really important. Um, so you're, what you're doing when you do that is you're in case increasing their sleep drive before they go to bed at night. And that's really key. If people don't have high sleep drive and they're trying to sleep, they're not going to be able to fall asleep. And so you're really optimizing awake and sleep times and when they occur so that you're not only optimizing sleep drive when it's time to sleep, but you're also matching um, circadian cues. We're, we're driven largely by changes in light and temperature. And we do best when we sleep at night and are awake during the day. It's a novel idea, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was reading a little bit about you, uh, mm -hmm. and I see that some of your research interests include hypnosis yes. for, for CBT. So is this something that you use for your insomnia patients? You know, I'm, I'm wondering if you can help me understand it. Tell me a little bit about it and how it works. Yeah, so so I regard hypnosis as, as a tool in my toolbox for how I can communicate something to patients. And uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, my philosophy has a lot to do with identifying patients' resources and amplifying those so that they can apply them to new problems. And uh, hypnosis is a wonderful vehicle to do that because you can encourage people to think about ways that they have solved difficult problems in the past and then imagine themselves solving a new problem that you've been discussing in the present and in the future. And it's a good way to get people to really reflect and take time to focus intently on a question like that. How can I take my existing skills and apply them to a new problem? Um, so for example, in the sleep clinic, and I don't explicitly do hypnosis when, I do, when I'm doing this, but in a sleep clinic, if I have someone who's describing themselves as a runner, for example, who likes to go running and is trained for marathons. And um, I know that they have the discipline and skill set to be able to do that. I might talk to them about how they're going to train themselves to sleep at night, how they're going to, um, how they're going to plan ahead so that they can optimize so that they can get themselves um, out the door and training, you know, uh, running. So I might use some metaphors based on what they've told me. That strategy is really derived from my training in hypnosis, but I'm not explicitly using a hypnotic intervention when I'm doing that. Oh, I was wondering, because I, I imagine that some patients might be a little resistant to the idea of hypnosis. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of misconceptions about what hypnosis is, what it can do, and that sort of thing. And so rather than get into that, um, the one you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be hypnotic in my thinking, um, which is to say, if you train in hypnosis, it's, um, you can't unring that bell. You're going to notice and think about things a little bit differently in any of your interactions with your patients. Uh, but, but where I might use it would be, for example, if I have someone who wants to learn a relax, relaxation strategy for calming themselves down before bedtime, and I might teach them self-hypnosis, that's really helpful. Um, it's helpful in the same way that uh, teaching them progressive muscle 
actual relaxation or mindfulness can be helpful. I mean, any of these strategies that are going to decrease autonomic arousal before bedtime can be really helpful to people who are struggling with insomnia. So it sounds like you are obviously an advocate for this. Do you think that it's something that um, all of us can learn and then incorporate into our practice? Uh, you mean advocate for hypnosis? Correct. Um, yeah, I think so, especially if you think about um, how you're going to use it and what you're learning and learning how to do it. Uh, but I uh, teach a course to medical students. It's an elective, actually, and uh, it's called Therapeutic Communication. And we, we review uh, hypnosis and ways in which it's a form of therapeutic communication, as well as motivational interviewing and other interviewing styles to optimize how we can use language to get patients to change behaviors. Uh, so much of what happens in, in the world of health has to do with making changes in behavior. That's a very important part of uh, um, what has to happen for health to improve. Well, it sounds very empowering, right? You know, where how you, you talked about teaching your patients self-hypnosis. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's kind of your, it, it ties back to what you believe in terms of harnessing the patient's strengths to help them with their, with their issues. Yeah, and I think it's really about, about empowerment. What my um, patients have heard me say over and over again is that my role as a therapist, either in the sleep clinic or when I'm doing psychotherapy in, in outpatient psychiatry clinic, my goal is to make myself as irrelevant to their well-being as quickly as possible so that they can do the work on their own and feel uh, like they have the skills and tools to do that. So it's a mark of success, right? When you can extinguish yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Let's pause here for a moment before we continue with Dr. McCann. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. The Virtual Sleep 2020 Schedule is now available at sleepmeeting.org. Review the entire listing of sessions offered and begin your plan to see yourself at sleep. With over 50 sessions to enjoy and access to all content until August 1st, 2021, Sleep 2020 is sure to be the best conference you attend this year. See the schedule and register now at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back. So we're talking about CBTI, uh, which really has been important when we're dealing with this influx of insomnia patients over the last few months. Um, I'm wondering if you think that this increased insomnia is strictly situational. Do you see that it might lessen as we hopefully get out of this pandemic? I mean, do you, do you feel like some people's insomnia will just disappear when things go back to normal? Or do you think we'll be dealing with this residual insomnia for some time? I think for some people, it's going to stick around. For some people, will improve. And Really, the way to get at that question is to think about what behaviors have changed because of the pandemic. Uh, first of all, we know that stress can activate the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and that plays a critical role in, in sleep and uh, sleep homeostasis. So, you know, once, once we have stress, we're going to struggle with sleep. Usually, we think about stress as something that's transient, that get, that's over quickly. 
and that once the stress resolves, sleep can return to normal. But we're seeing an unprecedented amount of change across many different elements of society. So, for example, um, you know, stress can come about because of increased ambiguity. We get mixed messages about what we're supposed to do, about what's what's the nature of the coronavirus, about all sorts of things right now. Um, and uh, it's uh, a level of ambiguity that people can really struggle with. Not always, but sometimes. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a sense of personal threat to physical integrity. There's a sense of threat to the integrity of family systems, of when we're going to see people again. There's concerns about job loss, concerns about housing, concerns about evictions. So there is a lot to worry about right now. And it's very tangible kinds of things. So I think the stress is here and going to be here for a long time as we deal with these, these changes. Now, that's just looking at how our bodies respond to stress. What I haven't even gotten into is the way in which our response to the pandemic has required us to make changes that can really impact our sleep. So, for example, people can sleep in if they don't have a job that they have to get to, or, you know, they may not have, they may not have a job any longer, so they can sleep in if they want to. They're feeling stressed and that feels comfortable. And so they're um, potentially disrupting a circadian driver for sleep by sleeping later in the morning. People can sleep in because they no longer have a long commute, but they may still get up early sometimes. I mean, you know, so, so we've got people able to sleep at different times of the day than they used to be able to. People can take naps. We don't recommend napping for people who are struggling with insomnia, but now people will often take naps simply because they're bored or they're feeling distressed and they can, they have the opportunity to do so. So that's a big effect. The other thing that happens because of the pandemic is people are very much seeking out information and we have the ability to seek out information 24 seven. And what this means is people can expose themselves to information before, right before bedtime during nighttime if they wake up from sleep, uh, really at all hours and whenever they feel a need to access that. And I think that raises people's stress levels. What I've often encouraged people to do is really ask themselves, for example, how often do you need to check in on social med media to feel that you're not missing something important? How often do you feel a need to check into a news service in order to feel that you're not missing something important? And once we can establish that, we can then really determine um, a couple of optimal times a day to do that and let that de device for seeking that information set aside in the meantime. Well, isn't it funny, though? On, on one hand, we see this insomnia. And like you're saying, people are sleeping in and, and there's all of this angst about um, illness and job security and, and housing and all of that. But then on the other hand, we're seeing when we look at sleep technology and that sort of thing, we're seeing that people are getting more sleep. And so isn't it kind of interesting how we've seen some patients that feel better because they're sleeping more during the pandemic and others have this horrible insomnia? You know, I just, I, I found that very um, enlightening. Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing about that is 
is we know that pre-pandemic, the U.S. was regarded as having a significant sleep problem related to not getting enough sleep, not giving ourselves adequate opportunities to sleep. So in some ways, people not going back to the usual jobs could be correcting that. Yet on the other hand, hypersomnolence is also a problem that creates insomnia. Now that may sound counterintuitive, but if you have people sleeping throughout the day because they're depressed, they don't have their usual social social cues and interactions, or they're distressed and want to just hibernate a bit from all of that, they can have significant sleep problems at night. And so you really have a hypersomnolence problem or a sleep fragmentation problem. So it's really important to understand that sleep can can sleep problems can take many different forms. And as we've broadened our definitions of insomnia to really include many different things, uh, hypersomnolence or sleeping too much is also problematic. So for some people, I'm sorry. So for some people, the problem's corrected um, in that they now have adequate opportunity to sleep. But in some cases, people are sleeping too much or at the wrong time of day. Do you know what I'm kind of hoping at the end of all of this? I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we are left with a few lessons. I hope we're all going to be better about washing our hands. Mm-hmm. I hope we are going to be better about not um, pushing through when we're not feeling well, right, you know, and going right. to work and coughing mm-hmm. all over the place, right? Right. And, Present, and I, presenteeism. <laughs> exactly. Right, as opposed and, to absenteeism. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we as a society have have kind of realized that we are chronically sleep deprived. And Mm -hmm. by getting that little bit of sleep, I'm hoping that that is another lesson that we keep and sort of when we hopefully get to this post pandemic era. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what are your uh, thoughts on? Have you thought about whether it's all um, do you think this is all behavioral change because of COVID? Or do you think that um, COVID encephalopathy is impacting insomnia, that people who have had COVID, do you see them as having a different type of insomnia? I think that remains to be seen. I mean, you mentioned COVID encephalopathy, and we do know that that in conditions like encephalopathy and delirium and some of these other conditions, sleep is really disrupted. That's one of the first things to be disrupted. But in terms of long-term effects or what we call the long haulers with COVID, uh, we don't know yet. We don't know what this virus is going to look like 10 years from now, um, what it's going to do long term. We don't have enough experience with it. So what advice do you have for our sleep medicine colleagues um, and to help us better treat our patients with insomnia? I think it really inc- involves encouraging people to go to uh, return to the basics. So it's keeping a regular sleep schedule. Uh, making sure that your sleep schedule is at the right time of day so that you're not trying to sleep uh, during the day and then be awake all night, for example. So regular sleep schedule, time of day, making sure that um, the um, uh, that you're winding down appropriately at night. I know that a lot of people use the nighttime to really fuel up on, on their Uh, anxieties and think about them and respond to those, but it's a good time to wind down. Um, You know, so I think encouraging people to keep a schedule, not nap during the day, keep active if they can, wind down appropriately at night. Uh, Don't spend excessive time in bed if you can't sleep. These are all really important changes that people 
should be encouraged to do. And this would go for insomnia as well in the absence of COVID. This is all really good advice. And so I'm sure you know that most of our um, sleep medicine colleagues, most of our practice is obstructive sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that sometimes there's a little bit of um, maybe reluctance with some of our colleagues to really explore insomnia. There's either, you know, there's a sleep aid that's a prescription mm -hmm. or you wear the thing on your head that keeps your right. forehead cool, right? Or we send a referral uh, for CBTI, but I'm encouraged by what you said about the brief behavioral interventions. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that is something that we maybe should be better about talking about with our patients. You know, it's a little daunting when you're coming from, you know, a, a world of primarily OSA to delve into then this six weeks of CBTI, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, we know sure. there aren't enough CBTI providers across the U.S. And yet it, from us in clinic, when we have these busy clinics, it, it is a little bit daunting. So when we first met about a week ago over the phone, you said something to me that really stayed with me. You had some advice for me and you told me not to let my patients treat me like a vending machine. Mm -hmm. Right. Th that's right. Yeah. Yeah. What I was referring to is so often uh, patients come in and they're responding to that common refrain of ask your doctor about they're coming in after exposure to a lot of different advertisements for different kinds of medications for conditions. And, uh, you know, to be fair, often, often the commercial is ask your doctor if such and so is right for you. But they come in and they just ask doctor for that thing. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that although it's expedient to just go ahead and write the prescription, the patient's going to be very happy. We can't let them treat doctors like vending machines. And I'm really grateful I don't have prescribing privileges as a psychologist <laughs> for the exact reason that it changes the nature of the relationship. I mean, so much of what, what you're dealing with as, a, as a, someone who can write a prescription is you have the potential for the patient to see you as someone who has something they want but refuses to give it to them. And that's a very mm. delicate position to be in. So I'm very much in favor of uh, physicians and nurse practitioners and others who prescribe thinking about ways to get into a collaborative stance with their patients so that the two of you are viewing the problem together and coming up with the most optimal solution for it. Well, isn't that funny? One of the things I tell my patients is once we start a sleep aid, we have to have an exit strategy, Ah, right? Yes. That we start it, it you mm -hmm. know, and, and the intent is that, well, let's get you through this sleep, you know, the sleeplessness you have related to, you know, your husband's passing or your right. job loss or whatever, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. But then I, I try to kind of build the um, help them with behavioral therapy or what have you. I mean, obviously the challenge is that it's really hard to find a therapist in person that offers a service. Um, but we, we do try, at least I try to have an exit strategy, but you know, in some ways it, it, it feels very transactional, mm -hmm. right? Somebody comes in and, and they, they kind of expect, and I think we've seen this all over the place with medicine that I have a yep. cold, I, I yep. go in, oh, what do you mean? You're not giving me an antibiotic. Why did I come in for? That's right. right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I kind of hate that we have Ha that it's turned more transactional. And I think it is time to revisit 
uh, the the premise of shared decision making. You know, we're on we're on the same team, and do you really want to be on this sleep aid for the next fifty years? Right. You know, right. why don't we work together to try to figure out why you can't sleep? Right? That's, is it your yeah, legs? Yeah. Is it mm-hmm. your sleep apnea? Is it you know you're you're revisiting trauma? You know, do we need to go to nightmare rewriting? You know, what do we have to do? Right, right. And, you know, so much of what I see in the sleep clinic when I'm there are people who have been on sleep aids for uh, a decade or more and are really struggling with the idea of coming off that. And they've gone from physician to physician to physician, always with the expectation that you're supposed to maintain me on the -hmm. drugs I was taking from the last person. And, uh, yeah, so that's, you know, I really want physicians to be prepare to restart that conversation with their patients about whether or not that's in their best interest to uh, remain on on sleep aids or really any other kind of medication long term and, and to really seriously consider whether it's right for them just because they heard about it somewhere and think that that's what they need. Well, and it's hard, isn't it? Because, you know, some patients are so rigid Mm-hmm. And they really are not receptive to that, especially like you pointed out, the patient that's been on a sleep aid for 20 years. And then this new person, oh, you want to take me off my medication and you don't know me and what are you thinking? <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, I think of it less so as, as being rigid about it, but having a certain degree of tunnel vision and not having the opportunity to explore other options. Maybe uh, that's a better way of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, it's more clever, right? We're going to explore together some other options that you might not have thought about. And one of my favorite techniques from motivational interviewing is the strategy of ask, tell, ask. So instead of just saying, well, you should try other things, you, you ask, would you be interested in hearing some other options? And then when the patient agrees, because who wouldn't, uh, <laughs> you, can then, you can then tell them what they are and ask again, what do you think of those? That's a great, that's a great piece of advice. I wish I had taken your elective when I was in medical school. We didn't have anything cool like that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's got to be one of the best parts of my work is, is working with the medical students and, and just thinking for a couple of weeks about how do we communicate. Isn't that great? I think that's such an important, important factor. You know, you want a relationship with your, you know, as a, as a patient, you want a relationship with your physician, you know, or any healthcare provider. Uh-huh. Um, and it, and it is important, I think, to have yeah. these conversations, even though it takes 30 seconds to write a prescription, it takes much longer to delve into insomnia and try to figure it out. Yeah, it does. And I have, I have the luxury of time in my in my setting as a psychologist, I can really spend a fair amount of time with patients digging into the weeds, so to speak, to understand what's going on. Well, and I think you need to. I remember years ago, I had a lady 45 minutes into her her visit, she had this epiphany, or she remembered something that had happened, and it just kind of all like fell into place for her. Mm -hmm. But that was 45 minutes into the visit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It It, it, sometimes just takes time to develop trust. It does. You're exactly right. And, and I think that's, that's something I always would share with our medical students too and our staff, our, our techs that, you know, it's such a privilege to take care of patients. And, and in the sleep world, we see patients when they're really vulnerable, 
you know, they're in their jammies and mm -hmm. they're sleeping. And if you think about it, I mean, who sees you sleep? It's people who are close to you. That's right. And right. And now all of a sudden, some total stranger is watching you sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and it is a privilege that they're allowing us into this very intimate space of their lives, you know, psychologically, when they're telling you about childhood trauma or they're telling you about their nightmares. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very, um, it, it, I don't know a better word than privilege. Yeah, it you is know, it, it's sacred. And it, and it, yeah. is, it is very much privilege whenever uh, our patients allow them, allow us into their lives. And I think that that is something that sometimes gets lost in this world of RVUs and 15-minute visits and that sort of mm -hmm. thing, right? Mm -hmm. That um, the administrators probably don't have that the benefit of that sort of experience with patients to, mm -hmm. to realize how very important that is. And if you do your work up front, you know, you spend time with your patients up front, then I think that, you know, you have more success down the road. It makes things easier down the road. Right. Absolutely agree. And I think that's what drives people into so many of the particular specialties in medicine that they choose is that ability to really connect with people. You know, my mom is a family practice doc and she's 75 this year mm -hmm. and still practicing. Wow. And she's had patients that knew her when she was pregnant with me. Oh, my. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't it, though? It's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But what a lovely, she's seen generations of patients and, mm -hmm. you know, what a lovely relationship that she's formed with them over the years. What other advice do you have for us? Well, I think for sleep doctors in particular, it's really important to get across the idea for all patients this notion of of sleep health. And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna really defer now to 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 tremendous pioneers in this area, um, Allison Harvey and Dan Bicey, and their book uh, Treating Sleep Problems, which was published in 2018, I believe. And that's an excellent resource because it's getting across the idea of sleep health. Um, uh, as opposed to treating disorder. Um, so, so if we think about that, again, I think the, probably the most important message in there for sleep health, if, if I had to boil it down to three things, it would be to make sure your sleep drive is high enough, that you're matching circadian cues to when you're sleeping. And, um, you know, probably another one, that's really important, and I'm blocking on it. So <laughs> hopefully, it doesn't have something to do with memory. But um, but you know, I think I think it's uh, it'll it'll come to me. Give me a moment. But but those two things are especially important: is making sure that you're uh, you know going to bed when you're sleepy, because which means your sleep drive is high enough, and that you're and that you're uh, paying attention to circadian cues, so that you're not trying to sleep sleep during the day. That you're getting adequate sleep at night. Oh, the third one, of course, was duration, in which we've also talked about with, with really all people in the United States. Uh, thinking about whether they're giving themselves adequate time to sleep is really important. Oh, this has been terrific. Uh, thank you so much for sure. all of your advice. Uh, sure. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, please email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.